Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia at La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and today, a podcast from Singapore. Singapore is a small country, highly reliant on commerce and trade, and with strong ties to China. This relationship can be at odds with other practices, for example, its small military has an active conscription system, and all citizens need to serve at least two years in the military, and their training bases are in Taiwan. And I can't imagine that goes down well with the CCP. Here to unpack the relationship between Singapore and China is today's guest. Hi, I'm Ian Chong. I'm Associate Professor of Political Science at the National University of Singapore. Incidentally, also a Carnegie China non-resident fellow. A good place to start is with what the countries have in common, namely Singapore's population, which is around 75% ethnic Chinese. Here's Ian Chong. A lot of it has to do with our colonial history. Mm. So the current population makeup is a result of the British making Singapore a free port in the early 19th century. The British were quite encouraging of labour mm. uh, to come in, and that included uh, at that point in time low-wage labour from what is today southeastern China predominantly. Yeah. Then it was the Qing Empire, it wasn't the PRC then. So it's important to make that distinction. And over time, uh, by maybe about the mid-late 19th century, ethnic Chinese from different parts of southeastern China, Qing Dynasty, became the uh, largest um, ethnic group, so to speak, in the region. Uh, we also have people of South Asian heritage, and they are here also uh, largely as a result of British colonialism. There were people who were here to work, to trade, but also the British brought over large numbers of convict labor mm. to uh, do the public works. And even when you talk about ethnic Chinese, there are people who trace their origins to southern Fujian province. So they would be Minan speaking. There's a smaller group that's uh, northern Min speaking. Traditionally, there's uh, Cantonese. Mm, mm. Uh, there's Hakka. Okay. okay. So even within the Chinese ethnic origins, there's a lot of diversity within that. Right. I'm stressing that because sometimes it is forgotten. Yeah. And that sort of discussion, people get all morphed into one thing. Mm. And then there's there are later waves of migration that came after 1949 when the communists took over China and also most recently from the 1990s and then from the 2000s onward. There have been professionals uh, who have migrated and naturalised. Okay. Does that affect the identity of Singapore then? Is there a noticeable Chinese influence on the fabric of the city, of the culture, and is there an association at all? You know, uh, there's elements of Australia who look fondly on our British heritage, for example, for the strong British heritage in the country. Can the same be said for Singapore and China? Where do I even begin? <laughs> um, it's important to recognise that when people say there's Chinese influence, it manifests in many different ways, some of which dovetails with state interests, has been co-opted by state interests, some of it isn't. Some of it is seen to be more accommodating to different groups. Mm. Some of it can be, at times, discriminatory. Okay. So at the state interest level, then, if you're talking government to government? At the state level, first, it's not divorced from all the stuff that's going on. Oh, of course. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the sort of predominant narrative is that the PRC, and I'm going to say the PRC because to talk about Chinese and all that, in English, it's very, very confusing. No problem. Um, yeah, so I'm talking, yeah. when I say the PRC, I mean the state, mm -hmm. as opposed to, say, the culture or the ethnicity, right? So the view of the PRC 
is that it presents great economic opportunity, mm-hmm. and that has been a view that's been around since the eighties, nineties. But at the same time, there is a sense of some degree of dependence on that Chinese market. There is also, to be honest, a sense of fear, uh, and this sense of fear comes about. From more recent developments, where we see Beijing being willing to punish various parties, Australia, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Lithuania, Czech Republic, Norway, etc. Long list. Yeah. Yes. So for the Singapore government, there's a view among some of them that we can't afford to get punished.、Mm. Singapore is small. We're not embedded in some bigger group like the EU. We don't have commodities like Australia, so we shouldn't offend、um, the PRC. So there's that element there. You'll have some people who have a lot of sympathy with the PRC. Position in part because there's a lack of distinction between Chinese culture and you know what the PRC state is that is present as well. Some would see the PRC as a threat, even though they're really afraid of it, in the sense that the PRC is an opaque system. It seems to really railroad its way through and has sometimes less regard for international law and things like that. Things that small state would care about. Okay,、yeah. and that's also in part why there's a certain Eagerness to maintain U.S. involvement in in the region to dilute some of that PRC influence, and also because the U.S. is seen as a sort of stabilizing force. Although that confidence has been quite deeply shaken of late, given the Trump years. Okay, so there's a reliance, a need to engage with China, which many countries have. But does this mean that Singapore is more inclined to be pro-China, or is there an effort to remain neutral? I mean, I, I know that there's a Taiwan element here, which I, I want to get into at some point. But I just mean, as far as disposition goes, and as far as engagement goes, I think it depends on who you ask. So there's a view that okay, we're small, we're quite powerless, we don't want any trouble, so we'll just keep our head down. That's I think one take on neutrality. There's another view that says, well, we could try to bridge or provide some sort of interface between the U.S. and the PRC. There are still others who say, well, because of our ethnic makeup, we need to be more aligned with the PRC. Also, because we're Asian, of course, this doesn't necessarily sit well with our minority groups.、Mm. There's that view, and it's also tempered by the fact that Singapore and our prosperity rests very much on sitting on part of that value chain. That links the world, but really, sort of the global north. You have the U.S., Europe, Japan, South Korea, with China. If you look at, say, the structure of Singapore's external economy, China is by far the largest trading partner in goods, but it is not the largest trading partner in services. It is not the largest investor in Singapore. The largest trading partners in services, I think, are the U.S., Japan, and the EU. Investment is the U.S. is just far ahead of everybody else. Yeah. So what that means is, when you get back to the Singapore government view, there's a lot of ambivalence because they feel that they're torn in different directions. They want to have their cake and eat it too, which was possible in this globalizing world from the 90s to the early 2000s. But as we shift away from that world, I think there's a certain desire to hold on to what was the past、yeah. and no real sort of vision as yet about what to do in a future where that. Sort of gravy train is not around anymore. At least not as robust as it used to be. The sort of benefits that Singapore had gained from the previous system may be diminishing, and there's 
anxiety about what to do next, but no clarity. Okay, okay. So it sounds like there would be a lot of opportunity to engage even more with China then, if that's the situation. It depends on your bet on China, and that's not something that anyone knows for certain right now. Mm. Singapore certainly is very deeply embedded. So apart from having private firms, we have government-to-government investment operations. So uh, Tianjin EcoCity, Chongqing, Guangzhou, and the old one in Suzhou, those are G2G projects. So there's certainly some pressure to continue and to build on uh, those opportunities and to latch on to China's Belt and Road. But then what's happening now is we see that the capital behind the Belt and Road is drying up somewhat. China's economy is maturing. Mm. It is, uh, like many East Asian societies, including Singapore, is facing a demographic dip, except it would be a very large one for China. Yeah. So its economy is still huge, the growth opportunities structurally may not be as present. Then there's the question of, well, the current PRC government seems to be quite eager to put a clamp on tech and sort of companies that grow too big. The PRC government seem to be quite arbitrary in some of those rules. Plus, there's this talk about internal circulation where the PRC would largely supply itself but still export. So in those circumstances, the question would be, can Singapore firms be part of that internal circulation? And if we are, then perhaps there's benefit to be had, Mm. but that's not for certain. And then there's the question of whether the PRC's sort of uh, trajectory and promise of growth and opportunity will continue. Or if given what I've said earlier, it's sort of more prudent to diversify your risk and look at other growth opportunities. So there's no clear verdict on where to go. There's a certain status quo bias, meaning to say that because there's so much sunk investment in the PRC, there's little desire to move away from that. Also, the fear of punishment comes in too. I think there's some concern that any sort of shifting away could bring some sort of backlash from Beijing. Yeah, yeah, okay. There was a recent meeting at the leadership level between Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Li, and it was uh, noted that China-Singapore relation is forward-looking, strategic, and exemplary. Very kind of vague, happy wordings there, but I think just the fact that there was the meeting was a bit significant, especially since Xi Jinping hasn't been out of the country much in recent years, and... What was your perception of that meeting? So the current administration in Singapore has been trying very hard to make nice with the PRC. Mm. They were, I think, a bit shocked when Singapore's own insistence on rule of law and abiding by the arbitral tribunal on the South China Sea didn't sit very well with Beijing, which rejected that whole process. There's a lot of concern about PRC information and influence operations here. So... That combined with the fear I talked about earlier means that current Singapore government's position is while they, in private, my sense is that they are very cautious about the PRC, but when they try to engage with the PRC, there's a lot of effort to make nice and accommodate them. And I mean, even the new PRC ambassador to Singapore has been very active with various uh, community groups and so on. If any other ambassador 
or High Commissioner to Singapore tried that, I think uh, the Singapore state would be quite quick to put a stop to it. I don't know, you could uh, ask that Australian High Commissioner to give it a try. <laughs> Did you find that meeting substantial then, or was it all just kind of surface level niceties? So I think it serves two functions. One is that the current administration in Singapore is trying to uh, show that they are eager to work with the Xi Jinping leadership. Mm. And on the PRC side, you would have noticed that she had a bunch of meetings with a bunch of different leaders. Yeah, Part of that is consistent with his statement at the 20th Party Congress about how he's talking about China as being back in business and wants to re-engage. And so this whole ASEAN summit, G20 APEC series of meetings has been the PRC trying to show that they are eager to meet with various groups. And Singapore, I suppose, is a safe interlocutor because Singaporean side is not going to say anything particularly controversial. They are going to be very agreeable and they will go out of their way to sound nice. You know, it's sort of a low-hanging fruit for, mm. for uh, she to meet with Lee. Mm. Singapore has a long relationship as well with Taiwan. So can you tell me about that and where it sees Taiwan's situation between China and the US? Singapore, culturally, the ethnic Chinese population here share a lot of similar markers, non-Mandarin Sinophone language with people in Taiwan. They speak Taiwanese, which is very similar to Hokkien spoken here, Hakka. So there is a sort of high degree of comfort uh, mm. among the populations. In terms of popular culture, Taiwan was a big producer of popular culture up through the 90s, early 2000s, and ethnic Chinese in Singapore were big consumers of that. Now, this undergirds the quasi-official relationship. Singapore had never recognized the Republic of China. It had voted for the seating of the People's Republic of China at the United Nations in 1971. But the Singapore government had been quiet on what it saw to be Taiwan's status, which of course remains in dispute. Now, in the 70s, when U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam Singapore was getting its independence and dealing with the British saying that they would withdraw east of the Suez. So Singapore had to build up its own defensive capability. And it went around looking for partners. Israel was one. Uh, Taiwan was another. Yeah. Cooperation with Taiwan in particular focused on the Air Force and also the Navy. So we've had former chief of Air Force and a former chief of Navy who were ethnic Chinese from this part of the world, from Penang with the Chief of Navy. They had served in the Republic of China Armed Forces, and they were brought over to help set up ours. Mm. And the Taiwan side offered some of their land for training in Singapore. Of course, we lack land for training, and that's why we're in Shoalwater Bay in Australia, Yeah, also in Brunei, and also Taiwan. And Taiwan, I think, is interesting because... If you think about where the Japanese Imperial Army had trained before they undertook their invasion of Malaya, it was Taiwan. Mm. This sort of relationship with Taiwan and other instances puts Singapore in a very interesting, unique situation with how they deal both with China, with the PRC, and how they deal individually with Taiwan. There's a much deeper relationship with both of them. Right. Singapore basically has tried to have their cake and eat it too. And 
from the 80s to the early 2000s, that was fine. It was a globalizing world. Taiwan, too, was getting more embedded with the Chinese economy, especially from the 80s, almost after the lifting of martial law, mm. as their two economies started interacting more. But we also see that in the mid-20-teens, when you have the PRC side try to use those economic links to pressure Taiwan, you had the sunflower movement in, in Taiwan, and there Taiwan got a lot more cautious. I think that was where the initial sort of signals that that trend of globalization was somewhat slowing. Singapore had hoped that that would not happen because of its own political system was very critical of protests in Taiwan and also in Hong Kong. The view was that, okay, we don't want to say anything. We don't want to upset the sort of wealth generating mechanisms that was there. And the question is, uh, how long that can continue. Well, yeah, you, you spoke of the um, of, of having cake and eating it too, but you've also emphasised you know, a, a concern at angering China. Yes. Is this relationship that Singapore has with Taiwan sustainable, do you think, given that tensions seem to be mounting? Right, so I think that's something that Singapore will try to tread. If you look at very recent statements coming out after the Pelosi visit, Singapore tries to maintain its own one-China policy. Every country has their own one-China policy. Mm. Uh, China has their one-China principle. and It claims everyone agrees with the one-China. That's not actually the case. So in Singapore's case, our one-China policy is very obliquely stated. But what you can essentially get a sense of is that Singapore opposes Taiwan independence as opposed to the U.S. one, which does not support, which means to say that, you know, they won't actively help, but they won't block, right? When Singapore opposes uh, Taiwan independence, however, Singapore also opposes unilateral changes to the status quo. Okay. So that's more or less the official position, which means to say that it hopes, the vision it has is one that locks in the sort of Taiwan not having full recognition, but China not having full control over Taiwan. Whether the PRC continues to be able to accept this. And I suppose that's them trying to thread the needle. Yeah. As a China watcher, are you anticipating, are you concerned that there will be further developments between China and Taiwan? Well, I think it's inevitable that there will be more friction. If you look at Taiwan, there's just very little attractiveness that the PRC holds for its population. They're okay with Chinese culture and all that. So some of the claim about desinification is essentially trying to muddle PRC, the state, and Chinese culture. Mm. The real issue for people in Taiwan, you can see this in various opinion polls and so on and so forth, is they like to have their democratic political system where there's checks and balances, where they can choose their own leaders, get rid of their own leaders. And as we've seen with what's happened in Hong Kong, despite the one country, two systems and the basic law, that doesn't seem quite as possible. Mm. And so mm. people in Taiwan don't want that. I mean, basically, the proposition for them to accept China's one country, two systems is to accept a less good deal. Why would anyone do that? Yeah. On the PRC side, this playing up of nationalism, and in particular ethno-nationalism, puts control over Taiwan as a sort of core plank of that ideology. What it means is that over time, as 
there's more pressure on China's um, economy as the performance legitimacy that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, had been trying to engage in for so long. As that, as the effectiveness goes away, then there may be more reliance on this ethno-nationalism. That means more pressure to make Taiwan fold. So I think what Xi Jinping has unleashed will last beyond him. So she has, of course, dismantled the mechanism for succession. And by introducing these ethno-nationalism as one of the sort of key terms for legitimacy, even she, once he gets weaker or is out of the scene, you have a political environment in the PRC that part of the terms of competition is going to be how nationalist you look. Mm. And so that could drive incentives to put even more pressure on Taiwan. Or there could be an incentive for Xi to do it within his lifetime. There's the Xi element, but the fact that he's played up ethno-nationalism in the way that he has, it's going to last beyond him. Yeah, yeah. So what position does that put Singapore in then? Most prominently, at least, is the military relationship with Taiwan. The fact that you use their territory for training for those sort of purposes. Actually, the CCP has been trying to offer uh, Hainan as an alternative to Taiwan. But that's not going to fly. Because if you think about a lot of the equipment that the Singapore military operates, it's American or European. Mm. There are export controls, even secondary export controls. So it's not possible for Singapore to bring a lot of that equipment to the PRC in any way, shape or form, or otherwise access to those things will, will get cut off. But I think the military exercise stuff is actually the easy bits. If there's going to be a crisis involving Taiwan, it doesn't have to be Taiwan. It could be Korean Peninsula. It could be South China Sea. So long as it is the U.S. facing off with the PRC, Singapore will find it very, very difficult to extricate itself. Historically, if you look at how the U.S. has deployed to the Middle East, it's used Singapore as a transit point, just like it's used Malaysian and Indonesian airspace and and waters to move its assets over. So if there's going to be a crisis on the Western Pacific, then assets from possibly Europe are going to come the other way. This is obvious to everybody, including Beijing. Mm. So the logical thing that Beijing would do would be try to delay or disrupt some of this movement of assets. That would mean putting political pressure on the Singapore government. It could mean trying to trigger some of these uh, ethno-nationalist sentiments to create a degree of uh, confusion, maybe paralysis. So as we've seen in the war in Ukraine, right, even a delay of a week or two can be quite strategically significant. So I would be very surprised if the PRC doesn't try to disrupt any movement through Singapore if it comes to an issue which they see as part of their core interest, uh, such as Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think Singapore is a bit of a hard position then. Practically, yes, but I think people are trying not to think about it, which is actually part (laughs) of the problem. If you could give some advice then to the Singapore government, if the right person hears this podcast, what would it be? Chances are if they hear me on the podcast, they'll turn it off (laughs) (laughs) and like delete it from their phone (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) So... I think Singapore needs to think ahead about how it wants to defend its own interests. It needs to think ahead about the vulnerabilities that it has and how to ourselves. It also has to recognize that it's very difficult to avoid pressure from the PRC. It's going to come in some way, shape or form and in ways that you would not even expect. Mm. I mean, in Australia's case, 
the real trigger was saying, let's get to the bottom where COVID came from, which is completely, I think, sensible because if we're in a world because of the climate crisis, there are more zoonotic diseases, etc., we want to know where it comes so we can avoid or you know do better the next time. Of course, Beijing was very upset, effectively sanctioning of Australian wine and so on and so forth. But that's also where I think it's useful to remember that any punishment that comes from Beijing is essentially going to be a unilateral sanction. And what we know from the sort of tons of literature on sanctions over the decades is that sanctions tend to be primarily symbolic. They can have an effect if they are multilateral. Unilateral sanctions are more symbolic than anything else. They may cause immediate term pain, but unless an economy is truly, truly dependent on the sanctioning side, there can be workarounds. They'll take a little bit of time and cost to transition, but they're possible as Australia has found out, as South Korea has found out. And so that's something that I think Singapore should think ahead about. Okay, so if there is going to be punishment, what could it be for Singapore? And how can we transition? And are there areas where we can start diversifying our risk beforehand so we're less vulnerable? Because basically this whole punishment thing, it's not this sort of be-all and end-all, it's surmountable. Okay, so look for alternatives. And diversify your risk. Do better risk management. That was Ian Chong, Associate Professor of Political Science at the National University of Singapore, and you have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. If you'd like to follow Ian Chong on Twitter, he is at Ian, and La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. This podcast is produced at the Bandura campus of La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.